For 30 years, St. John Associates has been a top orthopedic recruiter in the country. Their orthopedic consulting duo have a collective experience of over 40 years and over 1,000 successful matches. Visit stjohnjobs.com forward slash ortho to learn more about their process and connect with their free consulting services. Welcome everybody to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are tuned into our board slash orthopedic in training exam review. We are continuing on with some spy. Now, if you haven't already, go and put your information in the email list to get updated when we have our podcast companion book come out i am working on it as much as i can and hopefully we have something out shortly but those of you on the that are on the email will get a kind of a little special surprise a little bit earlier than everybody else so please go and check that out and without further ado let's go ahead and hop into the episode you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole Hello, hello all, and uh, welcome back again. We are continuing on with our OITE slash, I guess, board series review, and we are uh, talking some spine. You know, we had a little time since our last our last episode. I guess it was, it was really last night is when we recorded the last one, so now we'll talk some, uh, <laughs> some rheumatoids, C-spine trauma, so, uh, you know, I think it'll be good. All so, right, um, I'm ready. So first question we have for you is, uh, what is the Ranawat classification for patients with rheumatoid arthritis with myelopathy? Uh, yeah, so this one is, I mean, it's one of those classifications that a little bizarre, and unless you're dedicated to spine, you may not have to know it, but it will, uh, it can come up on on questions here. So it's usually class one, two, and three, and then three is separated into A and B. So class one is really just, they have neck pain, but no neurologic deficit. Uh, class two is subjective weakness, uh, hyperreflexia, and dysesthesias. And then uh, uh, class three is objective weakness. So actually measurable weakness in the clinic and then uh, upper motor neuron signs uh, where 3A, the patient is still ambulatory and 3B, the patient is non-ambulatory. And it's been shown that for patients that are already stage 3B, so they have objective weakness, upper motor neuron signs, and they are no longer ambulatory, surgery in these patients uh, is not as successful or are not as uh, routinely uh, successful in these patients. And um, now that we have kind of the classification of myelopathy, um, what are some C-spine conditions uh, that can lead to these presentations uh, in a patient with rheumatoid arthritis? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of things, you know, anytime you have a patient that has rheumatoid and especially when you're signing up, signing them up for surgery, at least the books will say you should get a C-spine film just to make sure there's no, you know, atlantoaxial subluxation because that's one of the things that are that can be common with rheumatoid um, patients. But so some of the things that you should be on the lookout for with rheumatoid arthritis patients in the cervical spine is, of course, one is atlantoaxial subluxation. Um, this can actually be the first presentation of cervical spine instability in a rheumatoid patient. Another thing to look out for is basilar invagination. 
and then subaxial subluxation. So below the um, axis, you can have subluxations of those vertebra. And we'll get into those here in a bit. But, uh, you know, so one of the things that we always hear about is that atlantoaxial subluxation. So what is the cause of atlantoaxial subluxation? There's a, a, a panis that forms or kind of like a collection of scar tissue and reactive synovitis that forms between the uh, dens or odontoid process and C1 leading to uh, kind of a, a prolonged destruction of the transverse ligament. And uh, for those that are uh, kind of still reviewing the spine anatomy, the transverse ligament is that primary ligament that keeps the dens pushed up against the uh, posterior portion of the atlas. And so when you have something that's pushing that space or that uh, uh, presumed space to be larger, like a panis or scar, uh, that transverse ligament is going to stretch and then over time it's going to rupture and lead to C1, C2 instability and subluxation. So uh, that's the, the, the main thing you're looking for on an MRI of the C-spine in a patient with rheumatoid arthritis is that panis formation between the dens and C1. And uh, what are some of the symptoms that these patients may have? Yeah, and just to piggyback off of what you're saying, if you like Google transverse ligament spine, there are good images, they're almost all axials. Um, but axial cuts that show the odontoid process and the transverse ligament right behind it kind of holding in place. So you can imagine if that's gone, it can be a lot of um, motion. But what you're asking was uh, some of the symptoms in atlantoaxial subluxation. So these patients can have neck pain. They can have occipital headaches as well. And the reason that they can have these occipital headaches is because um, uh, due to that um, C2 compression, you can actually have the occipital branch of C2 um, can be compressed and cause those occipital headaches, um, so those ones that are kind of in the back of the head. And then um, you can also have myelopathy as well as radiculopathy um, can also occur, you know, um, so just know that. So again, neck pain, occipital headaches due to uh, compression of the occipital branch of C2, and then uh, myelopathy and radiculopathy. And one of the things that we always hear about when you're looking at atlantoaxial subluxation is they always say the ADI and for a while, I never knew what that is, but it's called the atlantodens interval. So uh, what is the atlantodens interval? Uh, if you just break it down, um, it is the uh, interval between the atlas and the dens. So that anterior <laughs> yes. arch of the atlas and the uh, dens of the uh, axis. So uh, between, so C1 is essentially just a ring uh, is, and is known as the atlas because that's where the cranium sits on top of. And then the axis is C2. And that's what has the uh, odontide process or the dense. And um, if you have uh, instability of greater than 3.5 millimeters, meaning on flexion and extension x-rays. Um, you can, that's fairly common in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. It doesn't necessarily indicate surgery, but you can see, uh, like if they're extended, you would expect the atlas to shift posterior and press up against the dens and have a normal interview. But when they flex, that's when you're going to see kind of the gravity and the weight of the head 
pull the atlas anterior in relation to the dens and you can see that space that's the space that you're measuring but then when you get greater than 10 millimeters of motion on these flexion extension films that's when you have an increased risk of neurologic injury and uh, i mean if you just think about it if there's a one centimeter space uh created that means that there's one centimeter less room for the spinal cord to find its home so you're going to have an uh, an increased risk of just pressing on that uh, spinal cord. So, um, you're going to have higher risk of neurologic injury with that. Yeah. And so you have the, so we have the Atlanta dens interval, also the ADI, but then you also have, uh, a few other ones. Um, one is called PADI or the posterior ADI. And then also you have the SAC or the space available for cord. What's the difference between the PADI and the space available for cord? There is actually no difference. They are both the exact same thing, uh, at least to my knowledge. They are the same. So the posterior ADI and the space available for the cord, you know, the spinal cord are the same. And the number for this that you look at is 14. So if you have a posterior um, ADI, less than 14 millimeters that's something that may require surgical treatment again just think about it if the space for your spinal cord if you have less than 14 millimeters uh, of space you know you can think of you can probably get some nerve damage or some compression but those are something that's kind of the number that you think of when you're thinking okay well this may be something that may be surgical and just to go ahead and um and to reinforce what we we're just saying, uh, what are the surgical indications for patients with atlantoaxial subluxation? Uh, it's going to be similar to the ones we talked about with just the regular C-spine. Um, for those patients that have worsening symptoms, uh, their presentation is slightly different than and worse than when you initially saw them. Um, if they start to have objective weakness or other neurological uh, instability, um, if they have that PADI or the posterior atlantodens interval of less than 14. Um, if they have the atlantodens interval greater than 10 millimeters of motion on the flexion and extension, um, those are the uh, kind of indications for surgery. And one other uh, number I remember is um, that if the, uh, I believe it's the uh, PADI, the PADI or the space available for cord, if that is greater than 13 millimeters, so you have a space that is larger than 13 millimeters, um, that is has been found to be the most important radiographic finding that can predict complete neural recovery after decompressive surgery. So if their PADI is 14, you would still indicate them for surgery. And, but they have a good chance of a better neurologic outcome because it's greater than 13 millimeters. Whereas if you took a patient to surgery with a patty of 10 millimeters, that is not greater than 13. So they won't have uh, as uh, complete neurologic recovery as somebody who has a larger PADI. So uh, mm. those are the, the numbers to remember are uh, less than 14 is an indication for surgery for the patty, but if they are greater than 13 with neurologic symptoms and you decide to decompress them, they do have a good chance of a complete neurologic recovery. 
Um, and speaking of surgery, what are some of the surgical options for the patients with this uh, atlantoaxial subluxation? Yeah, so one thing you can do is a C1, C2 transarticular screws. That is um, kind of where you, I believe you reduce it first. Um, and then this is like a fusion of the lateral mass of C1 and C2. Um, so the things to know about this is the structures at risk are going to be the vertebral artery. Um, and then you also have the C2 nerve. Um, so the, the structures at risk when you're thinking about doing a C1, C2 transarticular screw, it's going to be the vertebral artery and the C2 nerve. Another um, option is going to be a C1 lateral mass screw and a C2 pedicle or pars fixation. So if you uh, if you go on Google and you, and you Google like C1 lateral mass, C2 pedicle pars fixation, the screw themselves are in different areas. So, you know, in the C-spine, and the C1 screw is actually in the lateral mass, which is a part of the, um, part of the entire, you know, part of C1. And then in C2, the screw is not in the lateral mass, but the screw is going to be either in the pedicle or the pars. And, um, and this is, uh, something that is is kind of this has been shown to be the strongest C1 and C2 fixation construct. And another thing is that it actually doesn't require C1 and C2 to be reduced. So I believe with the C1, C2 transarticular screw, and again, if you think about it, you're putting a screw across the articular surface, that's what it is. Um, so that's, you know, you're fusing those two. And then um, C1, C2, where you put a screw in the lateral mass, and then C2, you put a screw either in the pedicle or the pars. Uh, this is the strongest fixation um, construct, and it doesn't require C1 and C2 to be reduced. And then another option is uh, just to remove part of the odontoid, which is the odontoidectomy. I'm not sure um, how many people are, are doing that, but it is uh, one of the options that is uh, that is reserved for these patients. I don't I don't necessarily one hundred percent sure to know the surgical indications to do an odontoidectomy, but um, I don't know if they'll test on that. But hopefully, you just know kind yeah. of generally what are some of the options. Yeah, I think it's just if there's some residual uh, cord compression from it. Um, like if you if you do that occiput to C two fusion, um, where you said that it's that one is required if the atlantoaxial subluxation is not reducible. Um, if you fuse it where it is and they uh, still have that odontoid pressing on the cord, then you can do an odontoidectomy. But um, it's really, it, a lot of these are still able to be reduced. And so you don't necessarily have to do it in all instances. Okay. All right, well, I appreciate you for uh, clearing that up. Um, so we talked a little bit about atlantoaxial subluxation. What is basilar invagination or atlantoaxial invagination? Uh, so that is when the odontoid process is actually starting to migrate into the foramen magnum um, and uh, fill up that space as well. And yeah. uh, what happens is you get, uh, just like in rheumatoid arthritis in the hands, you get a lot of erosion of the joints leading to the disfigurement of the hands. You get the same sort of erosion of uh, C1 and C2, and also between the occiput and C1. And that erosion 
uh, if you think about it, it's just like decreasing the space uh, that is there for the odontoid. And as that, as those bones become closer together, the odontoid will, will uh, shift superiorly into the foramen magnum. And that can just lead to compressive symptoms within a confined space because a foramen magnum is made of bone. It's not going to expand at all. So um, if you have more bone in that area, there's less space for the cord. And um, it's actually available or available. It's actually present in uh, <laughs> about 40% of rheumatoid patients. Um, and it's not always symptomatic, but uh, just like with any other condition, the more advanced the erosion, the more advanced the disease, the more likely they are to actually be uh, symptomatic. Um, and then uh, last thing is uh, when that odontoid goes into the foramen magnum, that's where the brainstem is. And that's where the, the vessels come in. So the vertebral arteries are going to form the, the, what the ring of Willis, I think it is, or the arc of yeah, Willis. Yeah. Uh, that's what it sounds like that. <laughs> so, so, um, where all of those vessels start to coalesce in the anterior portion of the brainstem that can be compromised. It can lead to brainstem strokes. Um, and then this is where you get more of the cranial nerve symptoms in rheumatoid patients. And this is something that you should be concerned about. Like if you see a rheumatoid patient with facial droop, it obviously could be a stroke, but it could be severe basilar invagination of the odontoid pressing on uh, the seventh cranial nerve or anything distal to that, whether it's the uh, eighth, ninth, or 10th. So um, these are just all things to keep in mind. And obviously as it goes more into the brainstem, you're probably referring out to more uh, neurosurgery colleagues, but uh, still something that we should be able to diagnose and recognize in clinic. So um, speaking of which, you, you are trying to diagnose this and you have a rheumatoid patient in clinic and you get some x-rays. Um, what can you use radiogra radiographically to clue you in on basilar invagination? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that you can look at. One is called the Ranawat index, which detects um, vertical subluxation. So um, how you get this is that you, you know, you're looking basically at a lateral of the C-spine and you have an overlap of the pedicles on C2 and you put a dot there. And then you pretty much draw a line from the anterior and posterior arches of C1. So you have one line that's horizontal and then you have your, your dot in the pedicles. And then you look at that distance between um, between where that dot is with the center of the pedicles and then that line connecting the anterior and posterior arches. And so normal um, is going to be greater than 15 millimeters in men and in women it's going to be greater than 13 millimeters. So if that, if that distance is less than 15 millimeters in men and less than 15, I mean, and less than 13 millimeters in women, that clues you in towards, um, towards, uh, you know, that the patient may have basilar invagination. And another thing uh, that you can look at is called McGregor's line. Uh, no, we're not talking about Conor McGregor, the MMA fighter. <laughs> this is, <laughs> we're referring to a uh, no, physician here. Uh, so the McGregor line, uh, it pretty much just refers to a line that connects the posterior edge of the hard palate to the most caudal point of the occipital curve. 
And so what you look for is you look where the tip of the dens lies. So if the tip of the dens lies more than 4.5 millimeters above this line, it's, it's indicative of basilar invagination. So two things you can do, you can look at the Ranawat index, and then you can look at McGregor's line to, uh, to make this diagnosis of basilar invagination. And uh, those, those are both things that you can do, you know, in an office, you know, with just some tools with a lateral x-ray of the uh, of the c-spine so you know if you're ever worried or if you ever had a, have a concern for it you know just quickly google what it is and you can look it up and um and and you know make the diagnosis and so you know we talked about how to diagnose it and what it is um, what is the surgical treatment for um, basilar uh, invagination you know say for example you have a patient that comes to you they have irretractable pain and now they're having some neurological symptoms what are you going to do to treat this uh, so this one, it, you have to treat up to the occiput. And so an occiput to C-spine fusion, um, uh, theoretically, you would like to reduce that basilar invagination before you fuse them. And so um, their head is going to be in a slight bit of traction to help kind of pull the odontoid out of that frame and magnum and into a more normal position before you fuse it. Um, you can just do a transoral or uh, uh, anterior retropharyngeal odontoid resection. And that's more if the brainstem is compromised because once the brainstem is compromised, that means that that odontoid is like way up there. And so it yeah. may not actually, it may not actually be able to be reduced by just traction. So you may actually have to get it out of there uh, completely. Um, you can consider a C1 arch removal. Um, and then, uh, like I said, in these, in these cases, uh, cervical traction um, with the, uh, I can't remember exactly what the what the tongs are called that they, that you place into the skull to stabilize the C-spine for, for neck mm. uh, surgery, but you're going to be putting it in that and then um, placing it uh, under a, a slight bit of traction to reduce that dens out of the foramen magnum. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about this atlantoaxial instability and we've pretty much covered that C1 and C2 interaction and how it affects rheumatoid patients. But uh, you also mentioned that they can also have, subaxial subluxation what is that yeah so um with subaxial subluxation this is when you have a panis that's formed in the uncle vertebral as well as the facet joints which can lead to subluxation that can be at multiple levels so again subaxial so um, underneath the axis you can have um, um, subluxations at multiple multiple levels and i think like a classic one they'll show you is on the lateral um, x-ray of the c-spine you'll look under an axis and then like almost every bird of it will be subluxed a little bit so you know how you have those lines where you, you know look at the anterior line and posterior line um, the vertebra will, will not match up um, so one thing to note about these patients with subaxial subluxation is that anytime you have subluxation greater than four millimeters or greater than 20%, there may be some cord compression. So you, I think you need to do a really good physical exam on these patients and kind of see what's going on. And how you treat this, you treat this with a posterior spinal fusion with or without decompression. Um, so I, don't, I think that's like generally the things that we need to know regarding like uh, rheumatoid and spine. Um, you know, I, I think we are, uh, I think we've covered most of that. 
Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nail the Ortho podcast. I hope you all enjoyed us talking a little bit about rheumatoid arthritis in the C-spine. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and please go leave us a rating and go and put your info in on the email list. I know those are three things that I, that I just gave you all to do, but if you could do that, that'd be super helpful. So until next time, we will see you next episode. For 30 years, St. John Associates has been a top orthopedic recruiter in the country. Their orthopedic consulting duo have a collective experience of over 40 years and over 1,000 successful matches. Visit stjohnjobs.com forward slash ortho to learn more about their process and connect with their free consulting services.